0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts, stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Hello and welcome to Squawk Here are your headlines today. The Dow and S&P 500 see their sixth record close of the year as the US Treasury cuts its borrowing forecast for the first quarter while investors count down to mega-cap tech earnings. Tech and property names lead Hong Kong stocks lower, with Asian equities outside of Japan now set to snap a two-month winning streak.
2: Renault hits the brakes on plans to list its EV unit Ampere, citing tough market conditions. The CEO, Luca Di Maio, also flagging concerns over a slowdown in Europe. And gambling giant Flutter debuts in New York and reveals plans to make the U.S. the home of its primary listing uh, in an apparent another blow to the London Stock Exchange. I've met a lot of domestic U.S. investors who've been wanting to invest in Flutter. The higher levels of liquidity you see on the New York Stock Exchange in comparison with European exchanges is
0: something which they said will be very attractive. Later in the show we're counting down to first-half results from drinks giant Diageo just under an hour's time. We'll also get to speak to the CEO, Deborah Crew. That's happening at 9.15 CET. It's a first on CNBC.
1: The numbers rolling through from BBVA today. The Spanish bank producing a Fourth Quarter net profit of 2.06 billion euros, slightly above expectations on that line. The net interest income, 5.25 billion euros. When it comes to what we're seeing uh, in the numbers today, the uh, analysts had expected uh, fourth quarter gross income in the range of about 7.30 billion, and the number crossing today on that net profit line, uh, gross profit uh, crossing at 7.44 in that final quarter on the income. In terms of what we're seeing on the uh, trading income for the full year, we're at 2.18, uh, 2.18 billion euros. The net interest income, 23.1 billion. So uh, clearly a huge win from the interest rate story uh, as NIMS have been bolstered here across the course of the trading year. Operating expenses, they're down uh, about 12.3 billion. The uh, ROTE, and this is um, the profitability metric, very strong, 17% at the end of December on ROTE. So uh, that is a a very strong number that is crossing today. In terms of what the market is looking for, the share buyback, this is crucial. Buybacks and uh, the return has been flagged up by some of the investors. Barclays in particular has been watching this closely. It's announced the execution of €781 million in a share buyback program. So another just point to watch on the markets here.
2: Good morning, good morning. How are we?
1: Well, thank you.
2: Good, good, good. I think this is fascinating and it's a conversation that we've already had with the CEO, Carlos Torres Villa, and we're going to have again later on. He couldn't talk to us in Davos about the absolute numbers, but he can now this time around. But what he did give us the hint, and I'm sure you're all watching our Davos coverage, seems a long while ago now, We're, we're almost thawed out, but he was talking about Mexico. And how Mexico is just such a great driver. Okay, Europe is what it is, and the Spanish economy has done way better than many expected. But the diversification strategy of this, and to a certain extent Santander as well, in Latin America, just gives it another tool in the box. And my goodness me, the investors appreciate this one. From its lows uh, in 2020, you've almost tripled your share price, I beg pardon, quadrupled your share price from a two-handle up to over €11 per share. I think the market will love the return on tangible equity, i.e. the profitability uh, of putting that capital to work.
1: Is that the best of it though? I think that's been the question question. because of the net interest margin story and BVA saying 2024 net interest income growth at the mid single-digit levels in Spain when it comes to 2024 on the overall outlook for net interest income growth at the high single-digit slightly below activity growth. So it may be other areas of the business that uh, the market will look at, like Turkey. That's another area. Don't forget, we've had unorthodox monetary policy. I think the market's been looking to see whether more normal monetary policy will bring better fortunes for the bank. So,
2: as you and I have discussed for years, it ain't binary about having fat net interest income, net net interest margins as well. Everyone gets so excited at the start of the hiking cycle because what we see is oh, goody, you could have a greater range between deposits uh, and the price you're lending at as well, but of course, when you have higher interest rates, it creates higher delinquencies as well. And I think what they're flagging up a little bit there is about the NII growth at high, slightly below activity growth, so it's maybe actually if the ECB does move this year, and my goodness me, we spent a few few minutes talking about that. Um, We're then allowed
1: to talk about it this year, though, aren't we? Last year was too early to talk about well, rate cuts from the ECB. Apparently. From Madame
2: Lagarde, it's too early to talk about cuts anyway. But you never know, there might be something in the summer. So uh, anyway, but so maybe that NII. Stroke, net interest, income, um, sorry, margin story. Um, We'll just debate some more. We'll ask the uh, chair, Carlos Torres-Villa, that is on the show. And we'll do that in one hour and 25 minutes to the second. Karen, these U.S. markets, can I use
1: the word a bullion again? Yeah, when we use the word records, I think you can use that phrase as well because the S&P and the Dow turning in the sixth record close so far this year of course, we haven't strayed too far into the year, but uh, we have certainly seen some fresh peaks on markets. For the NASDAQ 100, that was the seventh record so far this year. But if you look at the levels now, we've gone the S&P 500 above 4,900 for the first time ever. So we're bouncing across the board, fairly decent percentage gains. You can also see the role the tech was playing. And that is fascinating on a a very big week for tech earnings to see the bounce already taking place on the NASDAQ 1.1%. The market closely eyeing numbers of the likes of Microsoft, for instance. The AI story has been generating not just a lot of hype, but also a huge amount of uh, returns that you're seeing on particular handful of stocks the question is whether that's going to translate by the end of the week as investors get the show and tell season. Let's take a look at Treasuries. A lot of big events playing out for the Treasury market, namely of course uh, the amount of new debt issuance that's coming. We saw in fact uh, some of those concerns easing about just how much issuance there will be. So across the board we're 4.05 on the long end, 4.30 at the short end. Huge week too for the Fed market is trying to guess what we're going to see in terms of the rate cut this year. So we may see more movement particularly around the short and long end over the course of this week. Let's take a look at the dollar. How we perched the morning session. Sterling euro both on the back foot. So dollar is king versus those. 127.06 uh, is the level on cable. We're 108.23 on euro dollar. To WTI and Brent. Uh, fairly significant moves over the course of the trading month. So far up about 7% on both WTI and Brent. A lot of geopolitical concerns. And we're still watching the development developments in the Middle East as to what type of retaliatory action we could see from the Americans after the death of three service members over the weekend. What we've got this morning, uh, another push high about half of a percent on both trades. Well Hong Kong equities are under pressure for a second day in the wake of Evergrande's liquidation order. Let's get out to JP Ong for more on this. JP.
3: Good morning to you guys, Karen. Yes, uh, looking at Chinese markets again, it's once again you're seeing these intraday losses out in Hong Kong, really outpacing what we're seeing out in the mainland. And it's not just some of these concerns about uh, about uh, possible Chinese economic slowdown. Again, a lot of that really stemming from that mainland property from the mainland property sector, which you're seeing is seeing uh, which is seeing bigger than expected losses as compared to some of its peers. And again, related again to that ruling by that Hong Kong court uh, ordering for the liquidation of China Evergrande, saying is enough enough is enough. But now. It does trigger a number of other questions as to how they're going to proceed. Will Evergrande be able to appeal this liquidation process, and how will they be able to seize certain assets? Given majority, if not all, of China Evergrande's uh, developments happen to be in the mainland, it might prove difficult to actually seize a lot of these assets. It might be difficult to actually realize some of these seizures if liquidation actually occurs and when this process actually happens. Of course, there's also the question as to what kind of contagion this might have for the for the markets in mainland China. It might impact the construction sector. It might impact a number of banks that have lent uh, uh, funds to many of these other property developers. And also question as to who might possibly be next, which is why we're seeing mainland property stocks among the biggest laggards out in Hong Kong. The other thing that's also weighing on investor sentiment is news today that out in Hong Kong, certain legislators have now said they have begun the process to propose new security laws similar to what they proposed and enacted back in 2020 to increase oversight and and and, and, and legal oversight on Hong Kong and this might also add more uncertainty to the investing climate and also the overall situation out in Hong Kong for many of these foreign investors. If you look at the Hang Seng Index at the moment, it's trading about 27% lower than its 12-month peak, firmly in the bear market so far in today's session, and there are many questions as to whether or not more stimulus from Beijing, which has been indicated in certain news reports that they will lend fund, fund support, support through fund flows to prop up the beleaguered stock market in on the mainland in Hong Kong, whether this will be enough to turn sentiment around. But there are questions as to what the business policy, the regulatory environment is in Hong Kong. And on top of that, you also have these worries about the property sector after China Evergrande, which had over $300 billion in overall liabilities, seems to have at least uh, uh, been ordered to wind up and liquidate. And whether there's contagion, whether or not there are other property developers that might be next, is a big worry, at least for many investors focused on this territory. Back to you guys in Europe.
2: JP, I'm really fascinated about the psychology of investors in Hong Kong at the moment. You can stop people short selling you can encourage some state-owned institutions and pension funds to uh, top up holdings but you can't make retail investors and private investors more generally you can't make them buy the market as well so a what's going on with the psychology of the the independent sector and b what about volumes as well i think it's a key indicator when people start thinking oh i'm getting more excited about the market you tend to see greater activity levels psychology plus volumes any thoughts sir
3: well yes, Steve, you've actually hit it on the head there again. You can introduce a lot of these short-term measures such as banning short selling on certain on certain funds. You can also say that hey, a number of these offshore the offshore holdings of these SOEs will be sent uh, will be redirected back to prop up the stock market but again. These are seen as short-term measures. Some of the biggest questions they have is, well, what is the regulatory attitude for a number of, of these sectors in mainland China and across greater China? We have to remember that apart from that, a number of sectors such as the internet and gaming sector in China was hit by a by a slew of regulatory issues that also clouded the outlook for many of these tech giants in China. Uh, is, and, and again, the question is whether that this will also have certain contagion effect to other sectors across the world's second largest economy and its its grow, its stock market also uh, out in mainland China. So I think uh, the question that some investors that we've spoken to out here in Asia, uh, when we've posed the positive question, will this be enough to actually turn uh, sentiment in mainland China and in Hong Kong around? Well, they've said it might not be enough because these are small stopgap measures until there's more clarity as to what the regulatory regulatory uh, attitude is towards many of these sectors in China, uh, it won't really lift much, uh, much or assuage many concerns that, is o- that are ongoing and have persisted with regards to Chinese markets over the last three years. JP, lovely
0: coverage. Thank you very
2: much indeed for that. Much appreciated. Right. Uh, Arabile is at the wall next to a picture of a very
0: small car. Arabile. <laughs> well, Steve, coming up on the show, it's an IPO no-go. Renault reversing its decision then to list its EV unit Ampere, but will that actually derail and even deflate Luca De Meijer's turnaround plans? We'll discuss that next. Plus, Alphabet, Microsoft—they're kicking off the quarterly results then for the Magnificent Seven after the bell today. Our resident tech expert Arjun Kapal will break down what to watch out for and. The world's biggest distiller, Diageo, dropping its fourth quarter earnings in under an hour's time. It's the first time that they're reporting in U.S. dollars as opposed to pounds. We'll walk through the results later than in the company's results with the CEO, Deborah Crew. That's a first on CNBC Interview. It's coming your way, 9.15 CET.
2: Uh, welcome back to my favorite business show that starts at 600 GMT, unlike others. Uh, the U.S. Treasury Department has trimmed its first quarter borrowing estimate, saying it will issue $760 billion in new government debt. Now, that is down from a previous estimate of $816 billion a few months ago. The announcement comes ahead of the Federal Reserve's policy rate decision. Did you know there was one on Wednesday? I don't know if we told you, had we? Uh, close to 50% of traders eyeing the first rate cut In March, yeah, and that 50% have got all their fingers crossed, haven't they? Right, moving on, on a programming note, tune in for our interview with the IMF Chief Economist, Pierre-Olivier Gorichas, as the group updates its latest World Economic Outlook report. Uh, We'll bring you that conversation at 1400 Central European time.
1: The U.S. reportedly failed to stop an attack on American troops in Jordan after mistaking an enemy drone for its own. The drone struck the living quarters of a military base near the borders of Iraq and Syria, killing three soldiers. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby declined to comment on the report and said the Defense Department is working through the forensics of the attack. (music) Baker Hughes has announced fresh hydrogen milestones in the advancement of its energy transition strategy. The oil giant unveiled a new hydrogen testing facility in Florence, as well as new partnerships across the sector following the testing and manufacturing completion of its Nova LT16 turbines. Let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, good morning.
4: Good morning to you, Karen, and who better to walk us through all of the developments on the ground here at the Baker Hughes Annual Meeting than Mr. Lorenzo Simonelli himself, the President and CEO of Baker Hughes. He joins me live here on the ground. Lorenzo, great to see you and thanks for joining me today.
5: Great to be with you. Thanks a lot.
4: So, first of all, let's talk about the conference. What are some of the key themes and talking points coming out of this year's big event?
5: This year is really about how we continue to take energy forward. And the theme of the conference is energizing change. Last year was about balancing momentum, the energy trilemma. Now it's about how we use this decade to really drive efficiency. We know that we've got to decarbonize the energy mix, and that's the way in which we're going forward through the technology we provide at Baker Hughes. So this event allows us and our customers to talk about the partnerships, the new technology
4: introductions, and really talk about the technology as we go forward. And one thing you said yesterday on stage, which you've been very consistent about, is the fact that there is no energy transition without technology and innovation. One of the things you've announced here is this new hydrogen testing facility, so walk me through some of the key initiatives there.
5: Well, we definitely see the energy mix evolving, and there's a need for all of the above. So when we look at CCUS, geothermal, clean integrated power solutions, nuclear, renewables, and hydrogen, we think hydrogen will play a role as we go forward in the energy mix. It's been utilized in the past, and we're investing in hydrogen technology. We're already active in several projects around the world, in NEOM, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, also in the US developments, and we partner with several companies, and today we continued our investment by launching and unveiling our hydrogen testbed here in Florence, which is a state-of-the-art facility, and we have 100% hydrogen-ready gas turbines
4: that are already equipped and ready to go. Okay, so look, that's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. And hydrogen, we know, is probably going to play a bigger role in the global energy mix moving forward as well as we accelerate and move through this transition. But I also wanted to ask you about some of the other big headlines that we saw coming out of the conference yesterday. Were you convinced by Assistant Secretary Crabtree's comments and perhaps his work to ease fears among the European producers here about this U.S. plan to pause export permits for U.S. LNG? We see natural gas playing a key role in
5: providing energy security, affordability, and sustainability, and LNG is a key aspect of that. As I mentioned yesterday, we're disappointed by the pause in the export licenses. At the same time, we don't think it will stop the continued growth of natural gas and LNG. And I think the administration will go through its required process and I hope they come to the right conclusion at the end. But we're committed to natural gas and LNG at Baker Hughes and we continue to see it growing globally.
4: So what does this mean for Baker Hughes specifically and the clients that you're working with? Will there be a material impact as a result of this U.S. decision? No impact and uh,
5: in fact if you look at the number of projects that are already underway LNG is a long cycle business and if the US pauses it just means that international projects continue to go forward and we haven't seen any impact from that nor do we expect any impact as we go forward. The installed capacity required to meet the demand by 2030 still remains at 800 million tons per annum
4: required of LNG and
5: we're committed to that and achieving that as we go forward.
4: I want your take on where you see the status of European energy security today, too, because Europe has done a really terrific job of swapping out Russian barrels with US LNG and other alternative sources of supply. Do you see any key risks on the horizon for Europe as it stands right now as we come into 2024? I think Europe needs to
5: continue to evolve its energy mix, and it can never uh, just anticipate that the climate will be tempered and that uh, there won't be a cold weather. So it's got to continue to evolve its energy mix. It's done a good job. And I think as you look at the variety of sources, it's not about the fuel type, it's about emissions. And so you're seeing the right policies introduced around CCUS, around hydrogen, and I think that will continue.
4: And it's important so as to maintain the industrial base here in Europe. Indeed. Lorenzo, can I get your take on what's happening on the ground in the Middle East as well? We've seen skyrocketing tensions there. Baker Hughes does a lot of business in the region. What are your clients saying about the situation on the ground today? And does it present any risk to the outlook from the Baker Hughes side? What's your view?
5: At Baker Hughes, clearly, we don't condone any type of violence. And it's very tragic to see some of the events. From an impact on the company at this stage, no impact. Again, we're continuing operations, we're continuing to satisfy our customers, and we hope that there will be peaceful resolutions across the region
4: and that things do not escalate. One question I've been asking a lot of our guests on the ground here at the annual meeting is, do you think oil prices should be higher? What do you think?
5: I think the markets will decide what's appropriate. And uh, as you look at the different risk factors, they always get uh, calculated. And uh, there's one thing I've learned. I can never actually assess what the price of oil is going to be or the price of gas. The markets will decide.
4: Yeah, indeed. And uh, look, ultimately, that will determine what the investment outlook looks like for the year ahead as well. Perhaps if we see an easing of tensions, then that's probably good for business in the Middle East and some of the big producers that you're working with as well. But To move on from that as we progress through 2024 what would you say are the key opportunities for baker hughes and how are you going to find improvement on the margin here coming off the back of what was a pretty strong number at the end of last year a strong 2023 and also we've laid out a strategy for the
5: decade that really focuses on the energy technology evolution as we continue to see hydrocarbons play a role but also focusing on emissions and the efficiency of those emissions, reducing those emissions, and also being able to provide the energy mix of the future. We think that there's an increase in demand as we go forward. So the future is bright for Baker Hughes, especially when you look at the macro fundamentals of the demand for energy.
1: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express.
2: For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.